what in the hell's going on? What the hell is going on? What the hell is going on? I don't know what the hell he's talking about. You don't have to know what the hell is on it. What the hell's the matter with these guys? We don't know what's going on. What the hell's going on? Who in God's name knows what it's all about? Hi, I'm Danielle Pletka. And I'm Mark Thiessen. Welcome to our podcast, What the Hell is Going On? Mark, what the hell is going on in 2022? Well, what the hell is going on is we have gone back to the future and we're dealing with school closures again. The Chicago Teachers Union walked off and left 330,000 kids locked out of their classrooms. As we record this, it appears that, that uh, they finally settled to uh, come to some sort of agreement and the schools will open again. But uh, Chicago's not alone. Over 5,000 schools shut down in-person learning in the first week of January because everyone has their hair on fire over Omicron. The reality is Omicron and COVID is not seriously dangerous to most kids. There is no reason to keep these kids out of school. And we have done just so much irreparable damage to the children by keeping them out of schools during this pandemic. It might have been justifiable at the beginning when we didn't know much about the virus or what kind of damage it did or who it targeted. But we now know that children are not the most vulnerable or even highly vulnerable to COVID. And yet here we are two years later and we're shutting down schools again. What the hell is going on, Danny? So I think at the root of this is this great divide over what to do about COVID. There are people, the head of our CDC would be one of those people, who desperately want to hold on to the disease and the power that comes with it. Tony Fauci is another favorite. Rochelle Walensky, the head of our CDC, who was on the Sunday shows this last weekend, unwilling to admit that there aren't, in fact, 100,000 kids in hospital from COVID. Well, she COVID. was forced, by the way. I mean, let, just for the review of the facts, Justice Sotomayor said during oral arguments over the vaccine mandate that there were 100,000 kids in hospitals and that many were on ventilators. And Brett Baer had Rochelle Walensky on and he pressed her and he pressed her and he pressed her and he finally got her to acknowledge that it was less than 3,500. There's a big difference between 3,500 and 100,000. And on top of that, the CDC can't tell you how many of those are people who are in the hospital because of COVID or in the hospital for something else. And oh, by the way, they tested positive for COVID, right. which is probably the majority of them. So because we have elevated, quote unquote, the science to the stratosphere, and we have elevated people who are highly politicized, quote unquote, scientists to the stratosphere, we are in a place where a lot of people don't trust what they're hearing. A lot of people are exploiting what they're hearing in order to do less. And we have an environment that really feels like it was a year ago. It's a misery. And who is it a biggest misery for? Not you, not me. No, it's our kids in school who are either not in school or are being tested every three minutes, who are wearing 16 masks and staring straight ahead with all of their windows open or doing all their work outside. It's 23 degrees here, guys. That's insane. Well, you know, this is the thing that we, Marty McCary was on the podcast with us a few weeks ago. And one of the things that he said is that as bad as the data we have on the impact of COVID is and how bad the CDC has been about that data, the lagging indicators are the damage that the lockdowns and other restrictions have done to learning losses, mental health, to kids in poverty, the food insecurity, and all the rest of it. The damage is far worse 
from those things to our children than the risk of COVID. And yet we don't have a lot of that data yet because it takes a while to accumulate it and it takes a while for the long-term impacts of these things to play out. But we're starting to get some of that data now. And we've got a great guest who's done, I think, the first major piece in the New York Times starting to compile the data and the information about how much damage these lockdowns have done just in this past year and a half in terms of mental health of our kids, in terms of child abuse, all the other things that have happened because of the lockdowns. And it's staggering. It's worrisome. And this is just the tip of the iceberg. We're going to be learning more and more how much damage we've done. And now we're continuing to do because we're starting to do lockdowns again. Right. And we're starting to do lockdowns again as if there is no cost to those lockdowns. So some of the stats in our guest today, David Leonhardt, who's a senior journalist at the New York Times, are just devastating. Suicide attempts slightly among adolescent boys, sharply among adolescent girls are up. The number of ER visits for suspected suicide attempts by 12 to 17-year-old girls rose by 51% from early 2019 to early 2021. And I think any of you who are listening, we all know these stories. I know very few people who haven't been touched by or heard a story like this. Gun violence against children has increased as part of a broader nationwide rise in crime for sure. But there are 101 residents in the infamous Chicago under age 20 were murdered last year, up from 76 in 2019. School shootings have gone up. And as far as test scores are concerned, what we have seen is dramatic declines and declines in places where kids can't afford it, where kids are getting less of an education, where they're getting less parenting, minority communities, where their opportunities are just missing. Those people are being crushed. So just some data. McKinsey examined the COVID effects of the 2020-2021 school year shutdowns and found the pandemic left students five months behind on math and four months behind on reading. Schools with majority black and brown populations saw deeper losses, six months behind in math and five to six months behind in reading. And one million students who were expected to be in school didn't show up in person or online at all. Black and Hispanic kids were twice as likely as white students to be remote and twice as likely to have no live access to a teacher. And the disparity persisted in the spring of 21 when schools reopened, whereas 2% of majority white districts stayed closed, 18% of majority black schools stayed remote, nearly one in four majority Hispanic schools stayed closed. So this is a problem that is affecting all children, but it's disproportionately affecting minority children, poor communities. The learning losses are devastating. McKinsey also estimated that lifetime learning losses for these kids are going to result in as much as $61,000 in lost lifetime income and more for the poor minority kids. I mean, we are doing so much damage to these children. We've already done it because this is baked in now. When you're six months behind in reading and six months behind in math, you're not going to catch up unless we do some sort of remedial work like summer schools, which the teachers unions will never allow. So we've already done this damage. And now here we are at the start of 2022 and we're starting it all over again. It's wrong. I mean, I don't think there's any other word for it. And what is amazing to me and one of the reasons it's why. child abuse. Yeah. No, it is. I think that's any, a, if, any teacher who refuses to go into the classroom and do their job at this point is guilty of child abuse. Because you signed up for a job. <laughs> you signed up for a response. 75% of the teachers in Chicago voted to walk out. No, 75%. Look, they are a disgrace to their profession. I don't think there's anything else to be said about that. But 
one of the reasons why we invited David Leonhardt on the show is for the simple reason that this national conversation hasn't been happening. People who have been furious about their children's lack of learning, people who have been frustrated, been desperate. And I say that even if they're not as angry as I know I am, and I think Mark is about this, people who have been desperate have not been allowed to complain because the science tells us that our schools have to be closed and that your kid has to have asynchronous, worse yet, learning in which they do nothing, have one class a day, learn, fall behind, get involved in all sorts of trouble. And David Leonhardt, I think, has done a wonderful job in helping to foment the national conversation about what the facts are that you laid out, right? An excellent McKinsey report as well. And there have been several other excellent reports on this as well in the last couple of weeks. But starting the conversation, but then also beginning to talk about how we solve these problems. It's not just money, people. You can't just throw money at schools and then say to yourself, I've done what I needed to do for kids. There need to be real solutions for it. You know, the thing is, they say follow the science until the science contradicts their preferred outcome, right? If you're concerned with safety and the data doesn't back up your safetyism, then you just throw out the data. One of the things David mentions in his piece is that for kids, COVID is basically the flu. And the data shows it's actually less dangerous than the flu. So let me give you a piece of data. This is from Joseph Allen writing in The New York Times, Harvard professor of public health. He points out that the weekly hospitalization rate for school-aged children with COVID is approximately one in 100,000 in Britain. The hospitalization rate for 5 to 14-year-olds was 1.4 per 100,000, the lowest hospitalization rate of any age. I went to the CDC website. You know what? In 2018, the hospitalization rate was for kids with the flu, 7.7 per 100,000. And it was even more in 2020. I think it was above eight. So literally... COVID is dramatically less dangerous for these kids than the flu is. We don't shut down the schools for flu. And especially, it would be one thing if all this damage that we've done to kids in terms of mental health and learning losses, yes, but we're keeping them safe. No, you're not. You're doing more damage to them by keeping them out of the classroom. They're more likely to get COVID at home (laughs) than they are in the classroom. And they are more likely to suffer all these learning losses and all this lifetime damage, lack of socialization, mental health crises, because you're keeping them out. You're hurting kids by keeping them out of school, and it's got to stop. Amen to that. So you've heard our rant. Now maybe you'd like to hear a little bit from our guest today. And I will say, he's very passionate about this, and rightly so. But he doesn't rant. He comes with facts. David Leonhardt writes the morning newsletter every weekday. I actually really like the morning. I have to confess, you know, I said a lot of bad things about the New York Times, but I really, I I read the morning uh, every uh, Every morning. morning. (laughs) Uh, And uh, he's been at the Times since 1999. He won the Pulitzer Prize for commentary in 2011. And uh, Mark will be happy to hear he also helped found a new sports column at the New York Times. But for us today, he is a simple senior writer at the New York Times. Here's our interview. Well, David, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks. Well, you know, we're fortuitously having you on just as the teacher strike in Chicago seems to be settling itself. The school closures are really doing and have done irreparable damage to our kids. We had Dr. Marty McCary from Johns Hopkins on the podcast recently, and he said it's really going to take us years to assess the damage because there's so many lagging indicators. But you started the process of compiling some of this data. What are you finding? It's really alarming. I mean, it'll take us years to assess it, as you noted. And in many cases, my guess is kids will never recover, never fully recover from it in terms of lost learning and other issues. 
I mean, when you kind of go down the list, it's clear kids are far behind in school. Education researchers don't like to use weeks or months behind, but I think those of us who are, are not education researchers do, I would say kids appear to have lost certainly weeks and maybe a couple months of learning on average over the last two years. The losses have been greater among black students, Latino students, and students in high poverty schools. We also see a lot of signs that there has been damage to kids' mental health. Suicide attempts among adolescent girls are way up. They're up marginally among adolescent boys. Teachers talk about behavior problems being up. We see all kinds of signs that kids are less happy. I think this is not so much about kids, but larger problems. Violence against kids is up. Crime nationwide has been up. And so you just kind of look in one area after another, and you just really see that over these last two years, and we can talk about what parts of it might have been justified or not justified, but whether it's justified or not, and I think it's hard to justify a lot of it, there's just no doubt that we've done a huge amount of damage to American kids in an attempt to control this deadly virus. So I echo Mark 100%. Thank you for writing this piece. You're a parent. Mark and I are parents. For all of the parents out there, I think that you were finally making clear in one of the most important newspapers in our land. Mark works for the Washington Post, so I have to use that plural there. (laughs) (laughs) But making clear what we have, I think, not just suspected, but known for a very long time. And one of the things that strikes me is that not only is this devastating for kids, devastating for parents, very difficult for teachers as well, but it is deepening the gap between those who have and those who have not in this country. And that's it's deepening inequality. It's not just blacks and Hispanics. It's also the poorer white communities where we see people are falling backwards. And I think you were generous. A lot of the other data suggests that it is many months they've fallen behind. And what I really want to ask you about is the school perspective. (laughs) I have to stop myself from ranting here because I'm so angry with our schools. But They don't seem to be as alive to the truly troubling problems we're seeing as your article suggests they should be. I think what's hard here is there are a bunch of problems in the schools and that the schools themselves are, I think, almost certainly aggravating right now. But there are also a whole bunch of problems that the schools did not create. And I think it's important to talk about both of these. And so... As a society, we underinvest in education in a lot of ways. We do not pay our teachers well. We often expect our teachers to pay out of their own pocket for supplies and to do things that people in other lines of work, like our lines of work, our employers pay for. In districts where there are a lot of low-income kids, we ask teachers not only to be teachers, but often to be social workers who think about whether kids are hungry. And so I think as a society, we've really created very difficult conditions for teachers. And then on top of that, we've now said, hey, you know what? You not only have to do what you normally do, but you have to help kids catch up, which is almost impossible, right, to teach kids eight months worth of material in five months. And so I think when you kind of look at the reality out there, 
I am extremely sympathetic to the many, many challenges that teachers and school nurses and school administrators face, challenges that have been exacerbated by the pandemic. What I think it's a little bit harder to be sympathetic to is when you see school administrators, whether it's Board of Education officials or teacher union officials or individual administrators or teachers, exaggerating the threat that COVID now presents. If you are an adult, if you are vaccinated, if you are in the vast majority, not all, but the vast majority of medical situations. So, you know, unless you're getting active treatment for cancer or you've been a previous recipient of an organ donation, you are extremely well protected against severe forms of COVID. And the idea that we would shut down schools basically to protect vaccinated people from symptoms that tend to resemble those of the flu in most cases, strikes me as a trade-off that's very difficult to defend when you think about the enormous damage that shutting down schools does to kids, particularly at this point. We know remote learning basically doesn't work, particularly for younger kids. And we also know that the danger of having schools open in terms of aggravating the spread of COVID when vaccines are available is quite small. And so that's why I kind of separate those two. I want to get into that data you just cited on comparing COVID right now to the flu, because I think it's really important. But before we leave the teachers, so think about this. During the entire pandemic, grocery clerks showed up to work. Every day. We wouldn't have had food if they hadn't kept the grocery stores open. And they did it before there were vaccines, before there were treatments. They're also not highly paid or supported by society. And yet they showed up because they consider themselves to be essential workers. How is it that teachers unions, where they were first in line to get vaccines, Biden's $1.9 trillion COVID relief bill gave $128 billion to schools to mitigate COVID. That's $2,500 per student in the country and even more for some of the poorer districts. How is it that 75% of Chicago teachers voted to walk out? I think those are really fair questions. As I tried to say at this point, I don't think the science, I don't think the sociology justifies the idea of schools being closed in anything but extremely rare situations, right? I mean, 50% of your staff actively has COVID, then I can see the case for kind of brief shutdowns, or at least it's a debate. But absent that, absent not actually being able to feel the staff for very short amounts of time, the idea of prophylactically closing schools, I think is extremely, extremely hard to defend. I'm just trying to add to that the fact that many, many teachers did go to work before a lot of the rest of us did, right? And in many cases, they were going to work with unvaccinated students. And so I'm just trying to say, look, at the same time that we can say it's really hard to justify the idea of schools being closed right now, and there are teachers and teachers unions and school administrators who are nonetheless arguing for that, even though it will hurt kids, and who I think are sometimes misrepresenting the science about what this disease this virus means for vaccinated people, 
I agree with you on all of that. I just think it's also important to note the incredibly difficult job that teaching is, the fact that many teachers went back to their office before I did, I'm guessing before either of you did, before a lot of professional office workers did, and they often went back to their offices in some cases before there were even vaccines available. And even when adult vaccines were available, they went back before kids were vaccinated. So they were surrounded by unvaccinated people. And so I agree completely that it's hard to defend a lot of what's going on now. I'm just trying to put it in the fuller picture that teachers in our country are, for the most part, not a privileged class of workers. I think that that's fair. And we can go back and forth. And this isn't so much a podcast about teachers unions. But look, you know, the risk for school age children at this point from COVID is about hospitalization rates of between one in 100,000 and possibly three to four in 100,000. And there, we're not talking about death, right? We're talking about the potential of hospitalization. And, you know, I think it is also a challenge because obviously Omicron has also got a lot of people out of work. And teachers do get it. And a lot of people who are fully vaccinated and boosted do get it. And then you do get people out. So these present additional challenges. But I mean, I'll give you a perfect example. My daughter's school, which I have freely abused before on this podcast and will continue to abuse because of these silly rules, now operates with all windows open all the time, students not allowed to talk, students facing forward at all times, students masked outdoors for sport. You know, at a certain point, it's not just the learning that happens, it's the socialization, it's the community, it's these kinds of things that only happen in school. And I wonder why there was so much opposition to the notion that this actually does have costs as well as benefits. What do you think? So I think that's a really important point. It's not simply the binary question of is school open or is school closed. It's also the quality of the experience in the school. Are the extracurriculars happening? I got a huge share of my value out of high school from extracurricular activities. And so if I had gone to school when we couldn't have in-person meetings of the school newspaper or I couldn't have played after-school sports, it would have been tremendously damaging to the quality of the education that I got. And we now see that in a lot of places. I mean, we see plays and sporting events canceled. We see sporting events happening, but without any students in the stands. Those are important social experiences and they're important educational experiences. And I think you're absolutely right. And we have not been doing as a society in many places a cost benefit analysis and saying, wait a second, what is the cost of these mitigations and what is the benefit? To me, at a time when we have cases surging right now and for older people and for people in vulnerable health, there are some risks, even if you're vaccinated. So for me, at a time when we have these unbelievably high caseloads, that's an argument for turning the dial up on mitigations, right? Maybe we'd say if we weren't wearing masks before, we'd wear them more now. But instead, what we've often done is we've imagined that these mitigations have no costs, and we've just kind of kept them on without any sense of when we're going to remove them. And every single one of these mitigations has costs. If we can just talk about masks for a minute, I mean, 
I don't understand why so many political conservatives in our country are so hostile to masks. The evidence is clear that they do make a difference. But I also don't understand why so many liberals have embraced masks as more powerful than they really are. Masks make a modest difference. They make a modest difference. They really do when you look at the research. But they also have costs. And so at a time of a surging variant like Omicron, I would argue there's really a very good case to wear masks more. But at other times, masks impede communication. They're particularly hard for kids with learning disabilities. And so sometimes you'll see people on social media saying, I can wear a mask, no problem. My kids can wear a mask, no problem. Well, good for them. But there are a lot of people, if you're hard of hearing, if you have learning disabilities, if you're autistic, wearing a mask is actually a serious impediment to learning. And we can talk about why we've gotten in this place, but we've basically gotten in a place in which we ignore all the costs of mitigations. And we say only, well, wait a second, if this does anything to reduce COVID, we should do it. And that would be like saying we should outlaw cars because they cause horrific amount of death. They do, but we don't outlaw vehicles in the United States or any other country. No, no, just wait for it. It's funny because early on in the pandemic, I understood why we shut down schools because most viruses, children are the most vulnerable to the viruses. You know, we didn't know anything about COVID, and so we didn't know how it was going to affect children. But we now know that, as you say, it's no more dangerous for kids than the flu. Marty McCary, who I mentioned before, Dr. Johns Hopkins, he tweeted out that in Germany, we just learned that not a single child aged 5 to 17 died of COVID in the country of Germany in 15 months during the pandemic. CDC doesn't even track that here, whether they're healthy kids or whether they had comorbidities in terms of child deaths. But as you point out, it's kids more in danger driving to school in the car than they are in the classroom. Have we lost any sense of what proportion of danger that kids are in? Because we just saw Sonia Sotomayor say, the Supreme Court justice say in a hearing, 100,000 children are in the hospital and, and many of them are on ventilators. People actually think this, that this is what's happening. The Washington Post fact-checked that, and that is false. Yes, Um, exactly. Yes, we have lost any sense of perspective of how dangerous this is for kids. I do not want to suggest the risks are zero. You know, when I've written about what the risks are like of COVID to kids, people tweet at me, you know, a single story of a kid being hospitalized, which is obviously horrible. We live in a very big country, and unfortunately, there are a lot of risks to human life. Traveling in a car, riding a bike, going swimming. Playing hockey, a little boy was killed last week. Yeah, I I went and I looked at some of the numbers on hospital ER admissions, ER visits for sports injuries. And there are thousands upon thousands of hospitalizations for kids getting sports injuries every year. And you can look at it broken down by sport. And so we have lost perspective. I think, Mark, you're right. Early on, we didn't know what this would do to kids. I think it is right as a society to err on the side of real caution for kids. I know this makes people uncomfortable often, but it is a greater tragedy for a society to have kids die than it is for a society to have older people die, right? Kids have not had the chance to live the life that they deserve to live, that everyone deserves to live. And so 
I think it's right to be really cautious about this. But now that we have the information, it is really clear that COVID is extremely low risk to kids. I know many parents say, but what about long COVID? Long COVID is real. It's mysterious. It's not particularly well understood. There's no even agreed upon definition. But if we take the definition as significant symptoms for at least a month beyond infection, it's clear that long COVID is also much rarer among kids than it is among adults. And so if there were no cost to doing these things like closing schools and having kids sit apart at recess and canceling activities, well, then you can say, hey, what's the harm? But we know the harm. These things that we're doing in the name of protecting kids are actually harming kids. And I don't think it comes from any place of ill will. My sense is there are two main things driving this. One, We've just had this pandemic that was real. And before we had vaccines, it wasn't like the flu, despite what Donald Trump falsely said. It was much, much worse than the flu. And so the idea of taking relatively radical steps to try to reduce deaths was a really smart thing for society to do and saved a lot of lives. But not for kids. Um, Not for kids. Not for kids. kids. But for society as a whole. Right. But I think it made sense to take some really serious steps. But we have trouble now moving on. We've been so obsessed with COVID that we have trouble moving on. And then I think the second thing, and this is really a tragedy, is that we live in this era of partisan polarization. And what happens is people decide if the other side thinks something, it must be wrong. And so you have a lot of Republicans out there not taking the vaccine and then sometimes dying as a result. And you have a lot of Democrats who are doing things that actually harm kids in the name of maximum COVID protection. And I think people on both sides persuade themselves that this is right because the other side disagrees with them. And actually, in both cases, we have really tragically self-defeating behavior. What's ironic is that on the second part of what you just said is that so much of that harm to kids through school closures and the rest is coming from the progressive left and from people who consider themselves progressive. Yet the damage is regressive. It's much worse for poor and minority kids. I mean, I think McKinsey had a study that showed spring of 2021 when schools reopened, 2% of majority white districts stayed closed, but 18% of majority black schools stayed closed. And if you look at it, most parents with means can afford to pull their kids out of the public school and put them in a private or parochial school. It's the poor and minority kids who are stuck when the teachers union decides to hold them hostage and not open the schools. They don't have any options. So I don't understand how progressives can support policies that are clearly regressive and disproportionately harm minorities. I agree. It is regressive. Over COVID mitigation is regressive. I think, again, the closest I can come is my friend and colleague Ross Douthat refers to it as safetyism. I mean, other people Mm -hmm. use that phrase as well. I do think there's kind of become a lot of safetyism in parts of America, probably disproportionately in blue America, where we imagine that we can reduce all these risks to zero and we imagine they don't have costs. And so I absolutely agree with you that over COVID mitigation is regressive. I know I keep bringing this up, but I think if conservatives are trying to figure out, wait a second, how can those liberals be thinking this? 
And I think that's a good question to be asking because I don't think it's particularly scientific views that many liberals have on this. I would encourage conservatives to also look inward. How is it that conservatives have persuaded themselves that masks have no benefit? How is it that so many conservatives, millions of them, are refusing to take the vaccine or inventing stories about how the vaccines don't work or harm kids? And the answers to those questions are almost certainly the same as the answers to how are liberals deluding themselves about what this is doing to kids. And I think as a society, it'd be a lot healthier if instead of just asking, how are those other people who are our normal political opponents so misled about all this, we also spend a little bit of time reflecting on our own tribe. And that's why I keep trying to compare these two forms of delusion that the country has. I think that's very fair. And, you know, Mark and I have spent an awful lot of time talking about this and talking about this sort of bizarre conspiracy-based mania that has afflicted people. But I think a lot of it is rooted in the hyper-politicization that we've seen, where the now Vice President of the United States said she wouldn't take a vaccine that was put out by the Trump administration. Now, that's not the fonts et origo of all of the politicization. But I think you're exactly right. Everybody does need to look at their own community. And Novak Djokovic, I'm speaking to you here. So here's the question that I think we haven't touched on enough. I'm curious where you're going to go with this really, really important coverage that you're doing. What do we do about this? What we've seen, especially in higher education and at the university level, is, oh, well, inequity is the problem, right? So we need to mitigate the inequity. And therefore, they are admitting more and more kids who can't do well on these tests and who, if they were going to do not that well two years ago, are going to do even worse now. In other words, they are going to basically tell them any of these standards don't work. Now, once they hit the real world, the shit's going to hit the fan. You don't know how to write. You don't know how to communicate properly. Where do we go with this? Well, I don't mean to take us down a whole side road here. I mean, there are obviously instances of what you talk about, but my reading of the evidence is actually different. A bunch of schools have made a real big push to admit many more low-income kids, low-income kids who are white, low-income kids who are black, Latino, Asian. And at the top schools that have done that, places like Amherst and Princeton, those kids have done really well on the whole, extremely well. And so I look at that evidence and say, actually, the problem has been that a lot of our best schools are too focused on admitting upper middle class kids and not on admitting poor kids. That's the background. That's the side road. And I know there are some counterexamples here and there, but in the main, I think the problem... There was a big controversy in Stuyvesant a year or two ago where I think almost no minority kids passed the test to get into Stuyvesant. And so the solution is not to say, oh, well, we got to get rid of the test or make the test easier. The solution is to make sure that minority kids are getting a good education so they can pass the test, not to dumb it down. I mean, to me, the most successful approach on this in terms of both meritocratic and diversity, it was a Republican-backed policy. I assume it was a Republican design policy. It's the Texas plan, where you basically say, I don't believe that standardized tests are inherently biased in some way, but I do think that they are also imperfect because they're measuring particular kinds of knowledge. And so what Texas did is they said, instead of having one test where we're going to just rank everybody based on how they do on it, we're going to take the top 10% plan. We're going to take the top kids from each community and we're going to admit them to the elite schools. I think that approach is super effective. What's great about it actually is, alas, we have so much residential segregation in our country that 
that approach gets you not only racial diversity, but also economic diversity, and it also rewards excellence. And so to me, the research in a place like New York, and you can tell how much I like talking about education because I'm speeding down this side road now. (laughs) To me, the answer is basically you do need to have some kind of standardized test that you base it on because otherwise we'll just all tell ourselves that everyone did great. But I think it's often effective to say, hey, we're going to take the most talented kids, the best performing kids from every community. And what's nice about that is that Texas has shown it's worked. It's actually deeply consistent with ideas that Thomas Jefferson had. It's like fundamentally American, and I think it rewards excellence and diversity and all this stuff. You raised a different question, though, Danny, which is, well, what do we do about the fact that we've had all these learning losses? I think that's really hard. I guess what I would say is it's not the fault of the kids who've had these learning losses. Absolutely not. As a society, we owe it to them not to simply say, hey, you're behind. Sorry, you didn't measure up. I think we owe it to them to invest in them. And if we had a better functioning government, I think we'd be doing huge crash summer school stuff, real summer school. I think we'd be doing a whole bunch of things. But I really hope that we can remember that we've basically taken everyone who was a child in 2020 and 2021 and done a lot of damage to them, almost everybody. Kids who are in private schools have probably done just fine if the private schools were open throughout. And we really owe it to them to help them out. A hundred percent. I totally agree with you. And the government dysfunction is obviously a big piece of this. We have passed at this point now hundreds of billions of dollars in two, three COVID packages for education and for schools. But I think that the money doesn't equal the imperatives that you're talking about, which is not building a bigger stadium or a better ventilation system, but in mitigating the damage that's been done. And the reason for that in part is that no one really wants to admit that damage has been done. Yeah. And I think you're right from a, I think it's really important to ask, wait a second, why isn't all this money specifically for schools in the COVID rescue bills? Where is that money and what is it doing? I genuinely don't know the answer to that question. I'm open to the possibility that it's doing lots of good that I'm not aware of, but (laughs) I guess I'm a little skeptical. It's hiding out with the same money that was put forward for testing and for uh, other COVID mitigation. Yeah. Actually, ProPublica did a big study of this and found that half the money that was appropriated goes into some sort of general pot that then becomes very, very difficult to track. The Department of Education sort of threw up its hands and shrugged. But you raise an interesting point, and since we're embracing conservative solutions here, about summer school. What's the obstacle to remedial? We had shut down schools during the pandemic in the spring. We should have brought the kids back to school in the summertime. It's the teachers' unions who refuse to do that. It's collective bargaining agreements that prohibit school districts from mandating that kind of thing. And I think, again, I mentioned earlier that affluent parents don't have this problem. Affluent parents, their kids are in in in-person learning because if their school is shut down, they can afford to say, see you later. I'm going to a school that's open. It's poor minority kids who are trapped by striking teachers and school districts that don't care about them. So wouldn't the solution be... You said something in your column about how we're making a decision to harm kids in order to deal with COVID. The one group of people who don't want to harm kids and want to put kids' interests first are parents. So shouldn't they be in charge of the education dollars? Wouldn't that solve a lot of our problems? Talk about a huge other subject. That's a huge other subject, right? It's related. It's definitely related. I think one of the things we know is there are a whole bunch of things in society that often don't function all that well in a free market, right? Healthcare doesn't function that well in a free market. 
And I would argue that education is one of these things that if we went to a strictly free market, it would have lots of problems. There are a lot of charter schools that have done extremely well and that teachers unions have actually sometimes, I think, misrepresented the evidence on how those charter schools have done. Those charter schools tend to be heavily regulated with a lot of government oversight. They tend to be schools with lots of hours of instructions in cities, often teaching quite poor kids. The most free market kinds of charter schools, the kinds that Betsy DeVos has been involved in and others, they have a really bad record of teaching kids, as do the big for-profit colleges. And so I completely get the argument that parents... But it doesn't have to be charter schools, David. It can be parochial schools. What schools have stayed open during this pandemic? It's the Catholic schools. Catholic schools have done the best job probably outside of like the elite private schools of staying open and taking care of their kids. Why shouldn't a Chicago parent who just had their school shut down again be able to say, you know what? If you don't want to teach my kids, see ya. I'm going to go to uh, St. John Borromeo School in Chicago because Chicago Catholic schools are open. Why shouldn't they have that power? Why should they be able to be held hostage by a teacher's union? I think the question is whether the Catholic schools would accept the amount of government oversight that has traditionally come with schools that are successful and that get taxpayer funds. And I don't know whether they would or not. It's they wouldn't have to question. because they'd be coming from the parents. The money would go to the parents and the parents would be able to use the vouchers. That's the school voucher system. Yeah, exactly. Right. It's the school voucher, but it's not actually the parents' money in many cases. It's taxpayer money. The parents aren't necessarily paying that much in taxes themselves. And so I think it's right for government to claim an interest in it. And I think it's an interesting question. I just think, I don't think it's as simple as let's just give everyone a voucher and imagine that our school system will work better than it works now. I haven't yet seen evidence that persuades me that that would definitely be the case. I have seen evidence that suggests that no parent should ever be stuck in a monopoly and told you can either go to one high school or none. I have seen evidence that parents would benefit from having choice that includes charter schools. I have not seen evidence that suggests if we just gave everyone a check and essentially got rid of the notion of truly public schools, that kids would benefit. Is it possible? It is. But I'm not persuaded that that's what would happen. My exit question, because I know we did take you down a couple of different tangential alleys, but well, and and this is all very much wrapped together. And here's another tangent, but one that I don't see any road to recovery with, and that is the rise in suicides. I've got three girls. I can tell you, even the ones who are no longer in school, but who work, but who were working from home, but especially the one in school, what did they do the entire time they weren't in class and half the time they were or weren't working or didn't have an email to answer? They were on TikTok. Now, right. we can talk about the many, many evils of TikTok for hours on end, but in terms of the standard setting, in terms of the pressure, in terms of the norm setting that it does, I'm convinced so much of this is behind mental health crises. What are we going to do about this unbelievable mass of mostly girls who are genuinely in crisis? I don't know. And it is extremely (laughs) alarming. And I do think this is Even you can be more positive about what vouchers would mean than I just was and still think that this is an area where there's probably no one but the government who can play the right role, right? TikTok and Facebook, these companies are doing the things that maximize their profits and that's their obligation to their shareholders. Their obligation to their shareholders is not to care about what they're doing to teenagers' mental health. 
but boy, they are damaging teenagers' mental health. And I will be very interested to see going forward. This is one of the vanishingly few areas where you can actually imagine real bipartisan effort to address some of this stuff. There are both Republicans, including some very conservative Republicans, and Democrats, including some very liberal Democrats, who are interested in this question. And I'll be really interested to see going forward. Do they each just kind of keep banging on social media in speeches to make the other political side look bad? Or can they actually figure out a way to come together and try to do something to protect kids from the very real harms that you just described? I agree with you 100%. And look, I'm not going to sit here and defend TikTok, but there was TikTok before COVID. And I think the prime driver of all of this is the lack of socialization, the lack of activities, the lack of interaction with people being stuck in your room. It's one thing to be watching a TikTok video on the way to your hockey practice. It's entirely another to be sitting in your room for hours on end after a day of online learning in parentheses and then have nothing to do but watch TikTok. I just think that the enclosures are driving so much of this. And you've done such a great service in starting this process of documenting this because people are not recognizing it. They need facts. They need numbers showing how much damage has been done. And you've started that process, and we're very grateful to you. Thank you, Mark. The only amendment I'd make is I think social media was damaging kids before COVID, and I think what you described has made it much, much worse. Sure. I think we agree. I should just add that this will come off as telling people to go read the piece I wrote, but I promise it's in service of something else, which is... We're all in favor of shameful self-promotion on this podcast, believe me. (laughs) Which is called No Way to Grow Up. It is much less based on my own original reporting, and it is much more me pointing readers to work that others have done in these different areas that describes the damage that's happened to kids. Academic work, journalistic work by others. And so I just want to give credit to the many researchers and journalists out there who did that work that I kind of piggybacked on, and I tried to bring it all together in one place for readers. Well, we will link to it in the transcript, and we're really grateful to you for your time. Thank you so much. I'm grateful for your interest. Thank you very much. And uh, let's do it again sometime. So, Mark, I think we've established, and I think there can be absolutely no argument about not only the harm this is doing, but what the real science says about the risk to children and the risk to teachers. I think David was very clear about that and about the importance of balancing where I actually disagreed with him, and we're not doing a podcast on higher ed, but where I really disagreed with him was the notion that just by helping kids is just by lowering our standards and not trying to help get them out of the hole they're in, but merely accommodating the hole they're in and then stuffing them in universities. What is wrong with this society? We can't find people to work in basic jobs, but we want to stuff kids in universities where they're not going to prosper, where they haven't learned basic reading, writing, arithmetic, and where professors and teachers are bullied to give passing grades to students who can't otherwise pass, not by any intellectual fault of their own, but because they were denied a decent education. We are only exacerbating this problem. I think he's making a slightly different point, which is that we've done this damage to these kids during the lockdown. And so the answer can't be, well, sorry, you're lost. We have to find a way to help these kids not fall behind even worse, because the problem with these learning losses is they're cumulative and they're like a snowball 
right? Once you get six months behind on reading in the third grade, then you're falling behind even more in the fourth grade. You're falling behind even more in the fifth grade, and you never recover, and it becomes worse and worse because you can't keep up with the work you're doing, right? This is a snowball effect, and we've got to stop the snowball. We've got to figure out something to do to not leave these kids behind. It's not okay for us to just simply say, well, that's the price of COVID and you don't get to go to college. So we've got to figure out something to do. The answer, in my perspective, the obstacle is always the teacher's union. It is the institution that's focused on the interests of grownups, not the interests of kids. And education is about the interests of kids ahead of the interests of grownups. And so we should be across this country having a national summer school for kids to go and recover the lost knowledge that they had. I mean, we even hear all the time about debates over whether there should be summer school as a normal thing because there's so much learning loss over the summer. But we should be helping these kids make up the learning losses that they had. If you look at some of these poor and minority schools where the kids have fallen behind, they didn't have a cushion. They were already behind because the schools are awful and because they're trapped in failing schools and the teachers unions won't through collective bargaining. It's first hired, last fired. You can't fire bad teachers. New York, they have the famous rubber rooms where they would take teachers who were so bad that even the teachers union agreed they shouldn't be in a classroom. Instead of firing them, there was a room called the rubber room where they would put all the bad teachers and they'd sit there reading the newspaper all day and getting full pay. I mean, this stuff happens. We called Danny's office the rubber room, actually. <laughs> but look, so I mean, the teachers, anytime you look at what is the problem and what does the solution be, they're standing athwart the doorway yelling stop. And you should be able to hire and fire based on merit. That's the way it works in the entire rest of the economy, except in the education system. Collective bargaining is a route to disaster when it comes to kids' education. We should get rid of collective bargaining for teachers. There should be no teachers' unions that are allowed to do collective bargaining and build in all these protections for bad teachers. And we should put the dollars in the hands of the parents so they can choose. The only people whose number one interest is the kids is the parents in this whole scenario. No one else cares about the kids more than the parents. Let them choose. Let them choose to send their kids to a charter school. Let them choose to send their kids to a parochial school. There's a lot of parents out there who they might not be able to pay for an elite private school for their kids. But you know what? If they had a $7,000 voucher and maybe got a scholarship as well, they could send their kids to a better school. There's no reason why poor and minority kids should be trapped in failing schools, regardless of the pandemic, when affluent white kids can go where the heck they want. I think what the bottom line here is, is, yes, okay, we can keep talking about masks, school closures. Is this good? TikTok. Is this good? Is this bad? But at the end of the day, what is required is some way to help those who have been hardest hit by the decisions that were made, even without judgment about the decisions, although clearly you know where we all are. But even without judgment about those decisions, the effect is the effect is the effect, and we need to do something about it. And Congress, you know, which is busy trying to pull down the institutions of our democracy as we speak, should instead do its job. Money doesn't solve problems like this. It needs actual attention. It needs real proven proven solutions. It doesn't need kowtowing to teachers unions or to governors who want to appease these unions. And as you say, it is nothing less than child abuse to suggest that somehow the interests of these unions is greater than the interests of the next generation of Americans. No, no doubt. And you know who's doing a great job on this? Governor Doug Ducey. He announced a policy this week that if your school is closed in Arizona for even one day, 
you automatically, if you qualify, they meet the income level, $7,000 to send your kid to a private parochial or school or for transportation or for tutoring or whatever approved education cost you want. If your school shuts down for one day, you get a voucher. And I think that's something we should do across the country. And it shouldn't take a pandemic to make that happen. Amen. Well, for once, we didn't end on an unbelievably depressing note, causing me to walk out of here, wiping my sad tears off of my cheeks. So that's good news. We're really happy to be back with you in 2022. As always, please send suggestions, subscribe, rate us, share with your friends. And we've got some exciting news about a new related publication next week. Take care. Take care. Signing off from Danny's rubber room. (laughs) You're not allowed in my rubber room, Mark. (laughs) Bye. Let us know what topics you'd like us to cover. You can get in touch with the show by emailing us at whatthehell at AEI.org. Or you can reach us on Twitter. I'm at D. Pletka. And I'm at Mark Thiessen. That's Mark with a C. Please rate and review the podcast. If you like the show, please subscribe, share it, comment on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening to this. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 